There are many things that the City of London is known for, from the tree cover that gives it its nickname, the Forest City, to Guy Lombardo, to the world's oldest baseball stadium, Labatt Park. But did you know that London was also once considered by some to be the serial killer capital of the world? It may sound incredible, but from 1959 to 1984, the city may just have earned that distinction. It's believed that there were anywhere from six to nine killers operating over the course of this time, committing more than 30 murders in total. It was a dark time in London's history, and one that deserves more attention, considering only 13 out of the 32 homicides have been solved. Family and friends of the remaining 19 victims are still searching for answers. But with advances in DNA and information-sharing technology, these questions, now more than ever, could possibly be answered. In this three-part series, we'll go over some of the more notorious cases, which ones were solved, which ones are still mysteries. We speak to expert Michael Arnfield, a criminologist and associate professor at Western University. Before that, he was a police officer in London for about 15 years, simultaneously completing his PhD. This is part one of the Dark Age of London, Canada's serial killer capital. From the 1950s into the 1980s, there were serial killers at work in the city of London, although few people at the time seemed to be aware of it. At the time, there were likely people who didn't even know what a serial killer was, let alone that there were some operating in London. And much like now, it was hard for people to understand why somebody would kill just for pure individual satisfaction. To the public, London became a hotbed for homicides and few could understand why. No one was drawing connections between the murders and no one was putting two and two together as to why they were happening. Well, no one except for lead detective Dennis Alsop. Detective Dennis Alsop was an accomplished superintendent for the OPP, spending the majority of his 25-year policing career investigating serial homicide cases in the London region. To him, the cases became much more than a job. They became his life's work. When he died, his son Dennis Alsop Jr. was cleaning out his father's possessions when he came across a box including Detective Alsop's diary, which contained notes and hunches he had compiled throughout his career. Some of the information inside his diary went far beyond what was in the OPP archives. Dennis Alsop Jr. gave his father's diary to criminologist Michael Arnfield to study and continue his pursuit in identifying London's most notorious serial killers and carry on his father's work. A lot of cops will keep archives of some kind, whether it be duplicates or, um, you know, their own notes. I mean, back then, uh, the policies weren't as strict in terms of, you know, turning over your notebooks for um, for archiving at police headquarters so that they could get them if, you know, there was a request for information, like a freedom of information request or, or you know, you were since retired and it, you know a case came up for appeal and they had to find them. Whereas back then, sort of, it was just um, obviously not, the continuity just wasn't there. So, I mean, he took advantage of that and, and, and kept what he thought he needed to to look at the case period, cases, per, plural, periodically on into retirement. And then following his death, um, they were given to me, contained in that box was, I mean, stuff that I didn't even know from back when I was a cop, like stuff nobody knew about that completely blew the whole thing wide open. Our first case is the Tissue Slayer. In 1968, Jacqueline Dunleavy was a 16-year-old student at Westminster High School who had a part-time job at a variety store on Stanley Street near Warncliffe in London. Stanley Variety at the time appeared to be a normal convenience store that sold everyday items, 
But there was more going on at the store than the public knew. According to Professor Arnfield, it was also a place where men could go watch 8mm pornographic movies in the back room. And on January 9th, Jacqueline finished her shift and left the store, as she had done so many times before. As she walked to the bus stop to catch her ride home, she reportedly was seen getting into a white sedan. It was the last time she was seen alive. Jacqueline Dunleavy became the first known victim of the killer, who became known as the Tissue Slayer. Despite the best efforts of people searching for Jacqueline, including her father, who was a police officer, her body was found in a parking lot where Matthews Hall currently stands. She was left beaten and strangled, with her skirt pulled up and her blouse ripped open. She also had a pink tissue lodged in her throat. This is something that is purely expressive. There is no value to the offender to do this. It does not assist them in carrying out the crime. So it has some other either symbolic or, or, or sexual purpose to, to be doing this. Jacqueline may have been the first victim of a killer who left a signature with a tissue, but certainly not the last. Just a month later, nine-year-old Frankie Jensen disappeared on his way to school from the same neighborhood that Jacqueline and Levy was found. Later, he was discovered in the Thames River in Thamesford, and he also had a tissue in his mouth. Very strange, uh, and um, two different offenders, most likely in the second case, an act of, of copycatting, because today we would know that that piece of information, what we call a holdback detail, so something that you would not disclose publicly. You would hold that back because that's such a unique and, and distinguishing piece of evidence uh, that it should be known only to a handful of investigators and obviously to the killer. And you would use that uh, that detail to screen confessions um, or to make sure you had the right person in custody. By leaking that, whoever killed Frankie Jensen adopted that signature, uh, likely knowing that the cases would be falsely linked and would just create confusion. Unfortunately, Frankie Jansen was not the only victim of this copycat killer. Many other young boys suffered the same fate. This led to the creation of the Block Parent Program. London being the first Block Parent city because uh, citizens through the reportage, mostly uh, what was then T TV London and the London Free Press, and even the London Evening Free Press, which ran an extra editions on some of these murders, specifically Jacqueline Dunleavy. Um, I mean, People knew that children were in danger in London, Ontario. So you put up this placard in your window and a child being followed by one of the many suspicious vehicles, uh, you know, skulking the city at the time, can run to that house and know that it's a safe haven. And unfortunately, that program's now defunct because, uh, I mean, no one was really interested in that anymore. And there's all other ways to keep yourself safe that you don't need to go to a stranger's house. While the Block Parent Program was keeping children safe, Detective Alsop began narrowing in on his prime suspect. Michael calls this copycat killer the neighbor. The neighbor was a man who lived near the Jensen family in northwest London. He later moved to Brampton, Bramalea, where two more murders occurred. And once again, the victims were his preferred targets, young boys. While Detective Alsop was sure he had the right person in his sights, the neighbor had a way of working the system to evade arrest. The various ways that the neighbor is able to game the system and stay sort of one step ahead and check himself in and out of various psychiatric institutions uh, where the police couldn't get to. The Tissue Slayers were the first serial killers in London that were well known in police circles, but they were to be followed by more serial murderers in the future. So what made London such an attractive place for serial killers? 
Well, that's the million-dollar question, and I, I, I present a few hypotheses in Murder City as, as to why. By looking at other cities that have strange anomalous crime patterns and that share some of the characteristics that, that London does, there's a combination of environmental and sociocultural uh, contributors. I mean, serial homicide, I mean, most theories of crime, about the origins of crime, are, are, are driven by multiple factors, but socioeconomics is, is a big one where you look at certain certain locations or what we call crime generators or crime attractors. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, uh, that they're impoverished. I mean, we see a lot of serial killers who were army brats in that their their parents just moved around because the father would have different postings with the military. So it has nothing to do necessarily with socioeconomic status. So those types of arguments about uh, or hypotheses about the origins of serial murder um, don't really play out the way they do with with other crimes. So it should not come as a surprise that really a middle class, unremarkable consumer test market city produces these people because uh, that's precisely the type of environment where they, they, they hide in plain sight. What also can't be discounted is the geographic location of London centrally located in southwestern Ontario with close proximity to the 400 series highways. In fact, the King's Highway system in Ontario predates the U.S. interstate by about a decade. So London is as one of the first sort of outpost cities with you know a number of interchanges on this highway is living the experience of the U.S. you know uh, before Americans even really understand what serial killers are, much less forming task forces to, to, to track them between states and, and their movements on highways. The highway obviously provides opportunity, it provides uh, expediency in terms of shopping for new locations and, and acquiring victims, and it allows for anonymity. You're, there's a specific type of serial offender uh, known as a commuter killer, who, and that doesn't mean that they commute to work. It means that uh, they are willing to travel great distances by vehicle to offend because they're just uh, a stranger passing in the night. They have no entanglements with the city that they offend in, so they're not on the short list of usual suspects when the body's found. Unfortunately, the list of reasons London is attractive to serial killers doesn't end there. London has one of the the earliest consumer test market cities in Canada um, may be susceptible to those to those same problems. So for the same reasons why cities like London were appealing to advertisers and to marketers um, makes them also, um, you know, incubators of, of serial killers, which is just sort of a weird sort of Freakonomics style um, parallel there. The lack of an individual community identity, perhaps the reason why London's a consumer test market, may have resulted in an absence of empathy that killers had towards their victims. But perhaps the biggest factor was the police just weren't catching anyone. Imagine that 50 years ago, where in London you've got, the, I mean, a, a number of small town rural departments that have all since been amalgamated by the OPP. You've got the OPP, you've got the city police, um, and they're all on paper and on various prototypes of different databases that don't talk to each other. So um, without that timely sharing of information, you can see how, um, I mean, the, the killers knew this. I mean, so they, they drop bodies, they acquire victims in London, drop the bodies outside of London, just by a few kilometers in OPP territory. And you've taken what should be one case and divided it in two. And now you've got two separate police departments, uh, not necessarily cooperating, sometimes cooperating, but certainly not sharing information as 
expeditiously as you would expect. And this carries on right through to the murder of Donna Alcock in 1983. So, I mean, some of the later murders as well. After the first spree of barbaric murders in London, the acknowledgement of serial killers and connected crimes was just starting to unfold. The police had no clue what sort of criminal psyche they were dealing with, and residents of the city were even less informed. Despite the lack of widespread awareness, there was a level of panic in the community, from the detectives to parents and to their children. What no one realized was that it was just getting started. A new era of killers was about to emerge. On the next episode of Serial Killer Capital, we explore the panic of the 70s when the chambermaid slayer terrorized the city. Although less notorious than the tissue slayer, his crimes were even more gruesome. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written by Haley Chang, Patrick Magermans, and Craig Needles. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.